Good evening and welcome to Resistance TV. It's Wednesday the 18th of August and it's 7pm. My name's Sean Bloor, I'm your host for this evening, filling in for the boss, Chris Williamson, who's taking a short break over the next couple of weeks and he'll be back with us again in September. So tonight we have our eighth episode of The Elephant in the Room with our resident academic, Rod Driver. And tonight he's going to be talking about the most important aspects of human psychology, which allow powerful people to manipulate us. Psychologists use terms like obedience to authority, desire to conform and willful blindness to explain what's going on. Um, so we're going to discuss why powerful people commit so many criminal and unethical acts without a guilty conscience. Now, I'm really looking forward to tonight's uh, presentation by Rod, um, because there are lots of powerful people in the world who manipulate us through the media, which we've been talking out about in previous episodes, but also on a corporate level. So Rod, welcome back to the show. And um, I'm really looking forward to hearing your views uh, tonight. Thanks for having me on the show again, Chan. So um, tonight we're going to be looking at um, human psychology, which is a subject that sort of underpins everything we've been talking about in uh, in previous weeks and so it might help people to understand a little bit of more about what goes on so um it, it's kind of in two halves the first half is mostly about why it is that um, most people can be so easily manipulated by propaganda from governments and big companies and then the second half is a bit more about how it is that um uh, we've created a system whereby very powerful people do commit a lot of crimes, but they don't seem to feel, they don't give the impression of feeling very guilty about that. So I want to begin with a quote by a philosopher called Carl Sagan, who was very popular um, maybe 20 or 30 years ago on television. And he said, one of the saddest lessons of history is this. If we've been bamboozled long enough, we tend to reject any evidence of the bamboozle. We're no longer interested in finding out the truth. The bamboozle has captured us. It's simply too painful to acknowledge, even to ourselves, that we've been taken. Once you give a charlatan power over you, you almost never get it back. And I think that's, that's a great summary of how humans behave on the whole, actually. So, uh, so the uh, the first thing that i'm going to talk about is what's sometimes called willful blindness other people call it self-deception other people call it denial and and it's about where people simply do not want to see the truth even when evidence very clearly challenges their existing uh, views now there's an outstanding book written a few years ago by a writer called stanley cohen called States of Denial, and the, the title has a number of meanings, but it's particularly looking at how it is that whole nations of people can come to deny the crimes of their governments. So you might be looking at, say, Germany during the Second World War, how people people knew about the crimes of their government in Germany, but they, they wanted to, to pretend that their government couldn't possibly be as, as criminal and brutal as it was and so on. And so Stanley Cohen comes up with this concept where he talks about simultaneously knowing and not knowing. We all have some evidence, some insight 
into the crimes that our government are committing. And similarly, people who work in very criminal companies, whether it's the financial system, the weapons industry, uh, often the pharmaceutical industry, they actually know about the unethical and criminal things that those organizations do. But they, they don't really want to investigate and search out the detail and get confirmation. So we try to deny knowledge of things that make us uncomfortable. And we find ways to convince ourselves that the normal rules do not apply in any given set of circumstances. And so we essentially just bury our heads in the sand and we pretend that we are uncertain about what's going on and we can live with ourselves if there's some doubt in our minds. So the thing is to understand is that one of the things we've talked about in previous weeks relates to propaganda. We are actually bombarded with propaganda that's attempting to condition or brainwash us every day. We're being fed misleading information, uh, which is trying to say, you know, our government have good intentions all the time. And a lot of the information is about saying companies have good intentions. Uh, but this is all very, very deceptive. So we're going to look at some very specific aspects of how our brains work based on various bits of research that have been performed over the last about last 75 years that uh, that tells us a little bit about this now one important thing is called confirmation bias and this means that we prefer information that makes us feel good about ourselves we prefer information that confirms what we already believe or what we already think we know and so there's a number of different biases so one of them is the way we search for information is biased. Now, most people will actually already be aware of this, although they wouldn't have known that it's a psychological trait. If you're a Guardian reader, you don't particularly want to go and read The Telegraph. The Telegraph is full of information and opinions that disagree with our own. We want to go and read The Guardian. And so we, we most people are, to some extent, aware that we do seek out people who have views similar to our own and that we actually feel quite uncomfortable often with people who have very, very diff different views to our own. Now, once we've got information, there's something called biased interpretation. Now, this means if you have information that's kind of 50-50, it partly confirms our views, it partly contradicts it, we will interpret that information in a way that supports what we already believe. And uh, if, we, if we find information that agrees with what, we're, uh, what we believe, we like that information. We're very receptive to it. If we come across some information that disagrees with what we believe, well, we really don't like that. And we'll find ways to pretend, oh, that doesn't come from an authoritative source or, oh, that, that wasn't really very important. No, I don't think I'll, I'll take that one too seriously. And in fact, I actually have a personal experience of this biased interpretation. I should point out with all of these things that uh, these, these are so powerful, uh, they affect everyone. And even if you're aware these exist, and even if you're an expert in studying these things, it's always impossible to avoid. So I remember a few years ago, we were a situation where my brother and I 
had completely opposing views about something. I can't actually remember what the topic was, so sorry about that. But we came across a documentary that talked about that subject. We watched, we sat there watching the same documentary. And at the end of it, I was thinking, ha ha, that documentary confirms what I believe and disproves everything that my brother thinks. But before I had a chance to say anything, my brother said, ha ha. And he said that he was right all along and I was wrong. So we'd both seen the same documentary, but we'd both taken from it the information that supported our existing view. And we'd sort of dismissed the information that disagreed with us. So this is a very, very powerful thing. And it's very, very difficult to avoid completely. And the other aspect of confirmation bias is what's known as biased memory. We will tend to remember information that agrees with us. And even if we've come across evidence that contradicts what we believe, we'll, we'll forget about it. And what's happening is that most people don't remember a great deal of detail about uh, information they've come across. They have what we call a framework of understanding, a general uh, understanding of something. And so if you get information that fits into that framework, well, that's easily absorbed. If you have information that doesn't really fit into that framework, well, we don't really know what to do with it. It doesn't really fit in anywhere. So we just, just find ways to, to pretend we've, we've never seen that, uh, that information. And so because of that, we will always remember the information that fits into this framework. But the, the information that doesn't fit in the framework, well, that's kind of gone. We've, we've forgotten all about it. And what you'll find is that people will believe things even when uh, they are very, very strongly contradicted by the evidence. And so the, the most extreme cases are where people believe the Earth is going to end in, say, the year 2012, as lots of people did. And when the Earth doesn't end, they'll find ways to convince themselves that they were right all along, but somehow the date is wrong or something like that. So even when the evidence contradicts their beliefs, they still want to carry on believing things. So we're mostly unaware of these biases, but they're all there. And once your opinion is strongly formed, then it becomes very hard to change. And this is what Carl Sagan was talking about when he was saying, once the bamboozle has captured us, if our opinion is incorrect at the outset, if we believe that the British government has really good intentions when it's dropping bombs all over another country, it doesn't really matter what evidence anybody puts in front of us that these are war crimes and that Blair and David Cameron are insane warmongering sociopaths, we're just not going to believe them. So, so that's an incredibly important um, psychological trait. And it's relevant for people who want to change the way our systems work. Let's say we want to change the economic system. If people have completely bought into, say, the theory of free markets, it doesn't matter what evidence we give them, they're never going to change their opinion. And a lot of academics have sort of pointed out that you never actually get old, long-established academics who are senior academics who've been uh, at the forefront of developing ideas in their field. You never really get them to change their mind. You have to wait until they all die off, or at least until they all retire, before the next generation of academics who might have different views come along, and then the, the kind of the knowledge in that field might change over time. Okay, so the next thing I want to talk about is what's called obedience. Now, there's some very interesting um, research studies. The most famous of one was um, by a chap called Stanley Milgram in 1963, 
where he got people to give electric shocks to other people. Now, in fact, these weren't real electric shocks. The people who were being shocked were actually actors and so on. And they, they found that um, the person who was giving the electric shocks, they were the subject of the research to see how severe a shock they would give to somebody else. Even when they were ordered to give a lethal shock that they believed might actually kill the person being shocked, if they believed that the person giving them the instruction had genuine authority, they would follow those orders. And in fact, we see the same thing happening in the real world. So nurses will actually follow the orders of doctors, even if the orders from doctors are incorrect and might lead to the patient dying. And so they've actually done research studies on this. And it's believed that a quarter of airplane crashes occur because pilots obey and they don't want to question instructions they've been given and the instructions are wrong. And most famously, there was a historical example of two battleships that crashed into each other. This is battleships in the same Navy. And the, uh, uh, the admiral or whoever was in charge gave instructions that would lead to the battleships crashing. And because people were so reluctant to question their orders, particularly in the military, obviously, these battleships ended up crashing. And we can see this plays out in a more general level in corporate settings. So you have um, senior executives in the board of, say, British Petroleum in London, and they are trying to cost cut. And they tell people on the Deepwater Horizon drilling rig to make these uh, cost savings and they cut safety equipment and they cut safety inspections. And you have a massive problem uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. And similarly, the Texas City oil refinery disaster uh, came about because people were obedient in situations which led to very, very dangerous uh, outcomes. <coughs> so related to obedience in a corporate setting is something called conformity. So again, this is another powerful uh, trait. And the, the best experiments on this were carried out by a man called Solomon Ash uh, back in 1951. And the idea was you have one person who's the subject who doesn't know what the experiment is in a room full of people. Everybody else in the room is in on the experiment. And the experiment is that a bell will ring a certain number of times. Let's say it rings 10 times. Everyone else in the room has been told to say it rang nine times. When you get to the subject and say, how many times did the bell ring? Nearly always, the subject will say it rang nine times. Uh, they, they are fitting in with the people around them. And this has been replicated over and over again. And this business about conformity, about fitting in with people around us, is an incredibly powerful psychological trait. And the, the theory goes that people feel very uncomfortable when they're isolated that it's a, a very human trait that's evolved over hundreds or thousands of years to fit in with the groups around us, to be part of a sort of tribe or a group. And to be wrong, well, that doesn't really matter too much, but to be an outcast in your group or to feel that you're not part of the group, that's that really makes people feel very uncomfortable. 
And what they found when they do brain scans of people um, who were involved in this type of research more recently, they found that sometimes, as far as they can tell, this fitting in is subconscious. That means people are not even aware that they're changing the numbers and so on. But actually, it's just so important to them to fit in that certain parts of the brain, which would be aware of the, the distinction between 10 chimes and nine chimes switches off. And so they, they just say the number that gets them to fit in. <coughs> Excuse me. And so one of the things that people have noticed in real world situations is that ideas seem normal if lots of other people share them. And so, for example, prior to the financial collapse in 2008, there were very, very few people questioning the financial system. There were one or two. But the vast majority of people just went along with the idea that the financial system works really well and so on. Now, this idea of conformity seems to explain many, many things that we witness uh, in a sort of corporate setting. So one of the things is called groupthink. If you have 10 people in a room and they all share the same opinion or similar opinions, and one person tries to say, well, I think actually maybe that's that's wrong, it's incredibly difficult that one person to speak up they will prefer to remain silent than say look i think chaps this is this is wrong um and what we actually find is that if nobody speaks out about something being wrong in a group setting often the opinion of the group gets more and more extreme because nobody's questioning them they assume they must be right and you start to see ethical standards can decrease when you've got groups so doctors won't blow the whistle on colleagues that they know to be dangerous because they have this desire to conform. And there's, there's other issues, too, which we're going to talk about a bit later on in terms of uh, self-esteem and just getting your paycheck, which reinforce many of these psychological traits. So financiers pointed out in relation to the crisis that if everyone's doing unethical things, if everyone at a bank sees customers as they use the term Muppets to be ripped off, then you start to think, well, what is normal? You know, what is unethical? What is a crime? If everyone's doing it, surely it's okay to do it. And so what you realize is that under those circumstances, the law ceases to be something that you mustn't break. It just becomes an obstacle to be circumvented. And so what we find is companies are actually doing more and more unethical and often illegal activity. <laughs> so obedience and conformity together, which we get in corporate or government settings, I think is a very dangerous combination. Staff really want to obey their superiors. We have very hierarchical organizations where people are expected to obey their bosses. But at the same time, they want to fit in with the ethos of the organization. And so Craig Murray, the whistleblower uh, in relation to he was uh, the British ambassador to Uzbekistan. And he blew the whistle on torture in Uzbekistan. And he had lots of friends who were um, in uh, part of the, the British government. And he thought they would stand by him. But actually, they were more interested in fitting in and being part of the system. So they, they wanted nothing to do with blowing the whistle on, um, on torture. OK, so those are, those are the main um, the first half of things about why it is that we're so easy to manipulate by powerful people and propaganda in the media. Now, the next block of things relate to 
the the things that distort the decision making of powerful people. So there's two that I'm going to link together, and they are power and money. So if you look at power, various research studies have tend tended to show that if you give people power, it makes them overconfident. In fact, delusional in some cases. They are so confident that they can do anything. So they are they will lie more often. They become more assertive, but they're less able to see the world from other people's points of view. They become more and more convinced that they are right. They become less inclined to challenge the received wisdom. So we're starting to realize that power corrupts people, but it corrupts them in complex ways. And one of the things that I say um, in, in a sort of general sense is that the most important expression in human history this is just my opinion, you might contest this, but it's an important expression, is power corrupts. And you see it everywhere. You see it everywhere in the present day. You see it everywhere in history. It's people with too much power thinking that they can destroy other nations. It's people with too much power in business thinking that they have the right to concentrate more and more wealth in their pockets, irrespective of the harms that they commit to others and so on. So, so we need to start talking more and more about, um, about power. Now, related to that is money. Now, money is a form of power. Money gives people a lot of power. But there's some very interesting research on the effects of money. It seems to motivate us to be more interested in ourselves, to be more selfish, and to be less interested in other people. So when money becomes part of the sort of the calculations that anybody's interested in, social motivations disappear. And in fact, people have noticed this in, in some very interesting research. So um, economists have always assumed that if you have a financial incentive to do something, then whatever reasons they already had for doing it, maybe they did something for the right reasons. If you have a financial motivation, that adds to the existing reasons for doing it. But in fact, they're finding that money completely obliterates all the other reasons for doing anything. So there have been two great bits of research on this. One is in relation to blood donors. So in Britain, we have a system where you don't get paid for donating blood, but people do it anyway because they think it's the right thing to do. They know it's a very important part of our healthcare system and everyone, everyone benefits. So in various circumstances, governments have tried introducing payments for blood donations. They assumed that those who were already giving blood would continue to give blood, and then a few more people would give blood because they were being paid. But in fact, what they found was the people who were already giving blood because it's the right thing to do stopped giving blood. And only people came forward to give blood to get paid. And what they found was the quality of the blood donations became worse. It came from people with more illnesses and so on. And a similar thing was found with uh, experiments about collecting children from daycare. Now, most parents will try very, very hard to get to the daycare center on time to pick up their children. They recognize they have a social responsibility to do that, and they're letting everybody else down if they don't. Some daycare centers started introducing penalties for people who were late thinking that that would decrease the number of parents who were late collecting their children. In fact, the opposite happened. More people were late than before. 
And again, it's suggested that the reason for this is that people no longer feel a social obligation to pick up their children on time because it's now a financial penalty. Uh, and so it changes the way we think about everything. It, money changes the way we value things. So we lose our sense of sort of social responsibility and so on. And it, it seems highly likely that these unintended social consequences are probably are quite significant. And now in terms of um, journalists, a couple of people have pointed out that, that um, uh, money, money is, has a very negative effect. So there's a couple of quotes that from various philosophers. So a guy called Upton Sinclair said uh, nearly 100 years ago, actually, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. And a similar quote from a philosopher called Edmund, Edmund Burke was, all that evil needs to flourish is for good people to see nothing and get paid for it. And it seems to be the case that journalists are very much paid, journalists in the mainstream system are very much paid to not see the war crimes, to not understand that the whole economic system is massively distorted and corrupted and so on. Okay, there's a couple of Final things that I want to mention as, as issues that relate basically to sort of uh, the, the scale of modern corporations. And so these are distance and complexity. So it seems to be that people are not very good at seeing or understanding things that are a long way away. So in fact, in the, in the obedience experiments that uh, took place earlier about the uh, electric shocks, it was found that if you put the person being shocked right in front of the person receiving, uh, giving them, then people were very reluctant to give electric shocks. If you put the person receiving the shock in an adjacent room, so all the person here is the, the sort of fake screams, if you like, then actually people are much more likely to give uh, electric shocks. So proximity makes a difference. What you realize with our corporate structures, and the same is true of our government structures, is that senior people operate in a sort of bubble of power. You know, they sit in the head office, they never see the evidence to contradict their decisions. They never see what's going on in the supply chain in a third world country and so on. So bad news and hostile opinions are sealed off. The same is true in government where we have the Westminster bubble, where you have bureaucrats, policymakers, politicians, and, uh, and the media all surrounded by like-minded thinkers. None of them works in a food bank. None of them works in a homeless shelter. They really have no idea what life is like for ordinary people at all. The vast majority of them are very well paid. And they so they have all these barriers that cut them off from the consequences of their decision. So we've, we see lots and lots of situations where this becomes a problem. So many people have now pointed out that the complexity of the financial system is completely unmanageable. The people in, in uh, the head offices of the biggest banks have absolutely no contact with the sort of what's going on in the grassroots. So they, they have no idea what's, uh, what's really going on in detail. And there are other things related to this. So psychologists talk about a concept called diffusion of responsibility. If no one person is given absolute responsibility for dealing with an issue, then nobody deals with it. Everybody thinks that somebody else must be dealing with it if it's important. And you see this everywhere. So if you look at, say, outsourcing, where one company gets another company to do a task, 
if you have a problem with your, let's say, your bins being collected, I may have mentioned this in a previous week, you go to the bin company and they say, oh, no, that you've got to speak to the council. And the council say, oh, no, nothing to do with us. You've got to speak to the bin company. So ultimately, nobody is responsible because we make up the, the systems around us more and more complex. Now, it's important to understand with all of the things that I've been talking about, it has nothing to do with intelligence, right? Having more A-levels or more O-levels or a university degree or a PhD, it doesn't make any difference to any of this stuff. The existing arrangements are wrong in every regard. So we have very big, complex, hierarchical organizations, companies, where people are not encouraged to ask questions. They're encouraged to be obedient. They want to conform. There are very few ethics and nobody has any responsibility. And lawyers and financiers and the people who run these organizations are trying to actually make them bigger and more complex, less transparent, less accountable, more risky, more unmanageable, with ever more power concentrated into fewer hands. So we need to reverse all of this. We need to create organizations that take all of these things into account. So we have to try and reduce complexity. We have to, if possible, break up the biggest organizations. So in fact, um, a number of people, uh, one particularly called Andy Haldane at the Bank of England, has suggested that we can break up all of the biggest banks and we should do that so that they create far fewer risks to the whole system, so that they're easier to govern and easier to control. And if one of them goes bankrupt, it's easier to, to deal with. But we need to also talk about removing power from people who have too much power. The people who run the biggest organizations have far too much power. Similarly, in government, we don't have the right systems of checks and balances. But there's something that's quite extreme that I think is worth mentioning here. And that is what we call profit-related pay. So uh, it's about profit-related pay. We've actually got corporate structures where basically we're saying, if, um, if a tobacco company gets more children addicted to smoking in Malaysia and Malawi, we're going to pay the executives bigger bonuses and the shareholders are going to receive more income because the company's made more profit by doing unethical things. The same is true of weapons companies. If they can bribe the Saudi government six billion pounds to buy British aerospace weapons, then the executives can get bigger paychecks and the shareholders get paid more. So the whole profit-related pay system is incentivizing or motivating very unethical, pardon me, and often very criminal behavior by executives. And so we need to really start to question that. I've never seen a debate in a newspaper about profit-related pay, which points out what I think is very obvious, that it motivates crimes and unethical behavior. And we need to stop doing it. So we need to make people more accountable. So that means building mechanisms into the system where more people can ask hard questions about decisions. And we need to move decision makers closer to their outcomes. You can't have a boardroom in London making decisions about safety measures in the Gulf of Mexico where they have no real idea of the details and so on. So, so those things can be changed. The first half of things that I talked about, so that's the conformity and so on, the things that are hardwired into us, which have evolved over many years to enable us to work together 
uh, as, a, as a group and so on. That I think they're much more difficult to overcome. And it would require that we have a completely different attitude, different approach to how we do education for young people. So we encourage questioning. We encourage alternative ideas. We try to make people understand that not to be wedded to an idea just because you've believed it for 10 years or even just because you've taught mainstream economics, let's say, for 20 years. People should not be wedded to those ideas. So we have to encourage questioning all the time, question our assumptions and so on, encourage whistleblowers. So it will be very, very difficult to do these things, but I think we really have to start talking about this. So one of the things I say every week to ordinary people to... to have a chance of not being manipulated by governments and companies by propaganda is to simply bypass the propaganda. Stop allowing mainstream news and newspapers into your homes. Try and get all your information from other sources. This will decrease the ability of people with power to manipulate us. And there's a, there's a great quote. I don't know where it came from, but somebody pointed out, we will know that we are making progress when our societies celebrate conscientious objectors more than soldiers, and when we celebrate whistleblowers instead of punishing them. Okay, so I think that's probably quite a good place uh, to stop and to see if uh, we've got any questions and uh, if anybody wants to, uh, to participate in a discussion. Thanks for that, Rob. That was really interesting. There was a few things that um, came to mind as you were talking um, about powerful organisations. Uh, for example, um, the World Economic Forum, um, the people who meet at Davos every year, um, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderberg Group, etc. And then we have all the think tanks. Um, is there any information that you can give us about any of those groups, any more in-depth um, thoughts on them? Uh, so I don't know if over the years I've, I've done quite a lot of research in, into some of those groups and it's very interesting from the point of view of ordinary people it's like the enemy is sort of hiding in plain sight you know we know that these World Economic Forum meetings go on they're even covered by the mainstream media they're always presented in very positive terms and uh, whenever anybody tries to say, hang on a minute, I think we should ask a few hard questions about the world's most powerful people all meeting up to have quite secret discussions uh, where, you know, there are very few outsiders ever allowed to see these things. Occasionally some journalists do go along, but mostly I suspect those are, very, those are journalists who've sort of been approved prior to the event where... The people running the event know that there's going to be very little criticism from the journalists. And once in a blue moon, a speaker will go to one of these events and actually say something that is quite critical of the system. And it, it appears on Twitter and so on. But it's quite rare. And and I think it's, it's quite clear if we look through history that powerful people often sit down together and come up with plans that are in their interests. And they try to claim it's in our interests, too. But if we actually look at the way the economic systems work, it's about them getting richer, often by taking wealth from all of us, by exploiting staff or customers or suppliers or exploiting governments and so on. So I think we need to be very, very questioning of, um, of all of these, uh, these groups. And I, so excuse me, uh, I think it would, it would be much better if 
these meetings were much more open to outside observers from organ other organizations and so on to, so people could see exactly what is being discussed um, but whilst we do have the minutes of some of the meetings let's say the Bilderberger meetings right back in the 1970s I remember coming across discussions about manipulation of the oil price which did actually take place during the 1970s and it had enormous negative consequences for most countries that were not oil exporting countries, because the price of oil went up from approximately $1 to approximately $12 in a very short space of time. And this all looks to have been deliberate manipulation by people who were discussing these things. So I'm very much against powerful people being able to do this. But at the moment, we have no mechanisms to enable any form of transparency. And even at a lower level, there are, there are no mechanisms to enable the general public or uh, NGOs or any any organization that might represent ordinary people to actually witness conversations between governments and big corporations and corporate leaders and so on. And I think this is a very, very bad thing. And I think the default position for any country or government that claims to be a genuine democracy is there should be an assumption of virtually no secrecy so you could see a justification perhaps for having secrecy in relation to the technical specifications of a defensive weapon system but in fact various experts who've analyzed concepts like national security or official secrets have said 99 percent of what is kept secret at the moment should not be secret it's massive overclassification, and it's hiding the crimes of governments and so on and the crimes of individuals or embarrassing issues and we should actually be able to see what our decision makers are doing that is the only way that democracy can ever function well where the governments genuinely do represent the people which is most certainly not the case uh, at the moment and, and quite often, these um, these powerful organisations that I previously mentioned and the think tanks um, like Policy Exchange, I can't think of any more off the top of my head, but Policy Exchange is a Tory think tank. Um, they, like you say, they are um, an amalgamation of maybe political advisors, politicians and corporations and they write the policies to give to the um to the mps in power don't they rod well so the oddly enough i actually part of my phd that i never finished i should point out uh, was into the role of think tanks and so on and i'm glad you mentioned policy exchange because that does appear to have been extremely influential in creating policies for the Conservative Party during one specific period in the run-up to the Conservatives taking power some years ago. Um, on the whole, as far as we can tell of think tanks in Britain, they don't appear that influential. I think most people understand that they're not honest research organisations. If you look at the output of most of them, it's complete junk. You can mm. see immediately that um, companies have paid them uh, their funding in order to get them to put out printed material that supports ideas that will benefit those companies and so on. So the vast majority of people, I don't think, take them too seriously most of the time. But they do provide an additional layer 
of people claiming to be experts, which is very, very dubious most of the time with uh, with people from think tanks who support a particular set of views. So you'll see them appearing on the BBC and various other um, mainstream media outlets. In fact, there have been all arguments about whether um, uh, one or two of these organisations should be allowed to appear uh, in the media at all because they're being deceptive. A lot of the time they claim to be charities. And in fact, it's it's uh, they're not really charities at all. They're really um, propagandists and lobbyists. And so they shouldn't have charitable status. So a number of people have tried to contest that with one or two of them and so on. But still they're there, they're in the background. Now in America, it appears that some of them are very well funded and they probably do have significant influence over policy. They have very senior people within them and they are part of the sort of policy making discussions. And they're not what anyone would call honest brokers. They very much on the whole have a kind of what most people would call a right wing, that's a sort of pro-corporate, pro-war orientation and so on. So in, in fact, the more you look, the more you find more and more organizations. So it's not just think tanks, it will also be lobbying organizations that again are mm. important by big companies to put forward a particular point of view. Some of them have been incredibly influential over the years. And what you find is there's lots and lots of different organizations that all participate in manipulating policy behind the scenes with no transparency at all. And nearly all of them are pushing it in the same direction of making it more and more neoliberal, thus increasing inequality and making the lives of ordinary people harder and harder. Yeah, I think there's um, a large accountancy company. I'm not sure whether it's Deloitte and Touche who provide, um, they provide people to Labour MPs, in fact, who actually work in Labour MPs' offices. So the accountancy profession um, is one of the... Yeah, I'm not sure whether it's Deloitte and Touche or KPMG. So I didn't make sure, I think the signal got lost for a second there. Um, so... The the big accountancy firms have been analysed by someone who's now in the House of Lords. Very unusual for someone in the House of Lords to be a really nice person. But his name's Prem Seeker, and he's an expert. He's the leading critical expert on the accountancy system. And he's, he's explained in great detail that the accountancy firms are very much just enablers of all of the kind of unethical and criminal activities of all of the big companies. So the accountancy firms have loads of experts setting up offshore tax havens, setting up ever more complex systems uh, for any big company to, to engage in fake transactions, to manipulate profits and, and so on. And unfortunately, they do have connections with both parties. So it, you may know more than I do about the links with the Labour Party, but again, they're yet another part of the system where everybody within the accountancy firms pretty much goes along with this neoliberal mindset, a very profit-oriented mindset, and um, they they do have some influence over politicians. And again, it's another aspect of the system that we meet we would need to change uh, if the opportunity ever arises. Uh, 
Okay, thanks, Rod. And um, before we bring Lizzie in, um, I just want to let people know that they can support the channel by subscribing, liking, and sharing um, this video with their friends. And don't forget to click the notification icon for when we go live each week on a Wednesday. You can also donate to us. Uh, which will again help our channel grow even more on uh, back through PayPal. It's paypal.me forward slash festival of resistance. Um, we've also got some uh, big news coming up about our festival of resistance, which will be held in October on the 16th and 17th of October in Nottingham. So I'm, I'm hoping that in the next couple of weeks, we'll be able to launch our website so that people can buy tickets and you'll be able to see the majority of the guests that we've had on the programme over the last year or so. Um, we'll have some great speakers um, coming along. Um, you'll probably be able to see Rod. I'm sure Rod's coming along and his wife, Deep Driver, who has been working diligently on the Assange case. Um, and we'll have some great workshops. Um, and our big question, our theme for the conference will be, why resist now but we'll be releasing more details about that um in the next couple of weeks so lizzie are you there hello hi lizzie hi well, how's it going in the chat room well everybody's commenting and listening enthralled again once again to rod um i think the the you've answered most of the questions uh, during the course of the conversation but the CIA, could you talk more about how the CIA chose to manipulate the media in the 50s and 60s and how that is applied today in the UK? Uh, yeah, I'll I give it a go. Um, so, oddly enough, um, a lot of people, I, I try and do this in a, in a couple of stages. So people assume that intelligence services are about gathering intelligence to help sort of protect the state where they're formed. So people assume that's what MI6 does in Britain, and people assume that that's what the CIA does, the Central Intelligence Agency in America. But actually, if you look at the history of the CIA, it's absolutely fascinating. It was created to ensure that uh, other countries had economic systems that worked for American companies. It had nothing to do specifically in the first instance with gathering uh, intelligence. And so it's played this enormous role in overthrowing left-wing governments in developing countries and backing dictatorships and supplying weapons and uh, financing and so on. And um, MI6, the British intelligence organization, does similar things. So various information has come to light about how in about 1960, 1961, the leader in the Congo, Patrice Lumumba, was assassinated. Now, people always assumed it was the CIA and the Belgian government. It was hard to tell exactly who. And in fact, in the memoirs of one of the uh, senior people of MI6, um, I can't remember who it was who wrote these. Somebody may actually remember this in the chat. But she admitted that MI6 had played a role in his assassination as well. And that was to get rid of a left-wing leader in the Congo, to get a right-wing leader into power so that the Congo and its resources 
were available to Britain, America, Belgium, and other advanced nations to um, to exploit. Um, so, <clears throat> so that's the role of the intelligence services. If we then look at their infiltration of the media, the CIA admitted many years ago that um, they have many people on the payrolls of the main media organizations, particularly in America, but not just in America, in the rest of the world too, who will write the stories that the CIA and therefore that the American government want to be written. And even the BBC admitted uh, some years ago that they vetted everyone who went to work at the BBC. Now, of course, these media organizations claim, oh, well, that was in the past. This doesn't happen anymore. But in fact, every now and again, an insider will come forward and say, well, actually, that is exactly what happens today. And it seems highly likely that there are senior people in almost all of the major media organizations, certainly the BBC, certainly some of the mainstream um, newspapers in both Britain, uh, but also in America, where the connections to the intelligence services are incredibly powerful. And lots of people recently have admitted that actually still the intelligence services do feed stories. <laughs> and the media will pick these stories up and run with them quite happily with very little challenge uh, and so on. And in fact, there's a, a German journalist. And if somebody had asked me this question, was it last week we did the media? I actually had the notes to hand. I don't have the notes at on the media to hand but a german journalist wrote a book recently all about how the mainstream media in germany particularly he was writing about but actually he was also saying it's happening in america and it's happening in britain too is completely controlled basically by the intelligence services in um, in germany i think his name was udo ulfkott and uh, his his book there was a major bestseller in germany I think it was translated into English, but for some reason it was only available at an exorbitant cost, something like a hundred pounds or so. So hardly anybody's ever ever read it. I've never actually read it, but I have. He's actually done presentations online uh, in English, or certainly with English subtitles, where he's talked about this sort of thing. So I have no doubt that even today, the link between the media and the intelligence services is extremely powerful and the media is not uh, independent in any meaningful sense and we we were talking after the show last week about the the use of neurolinguistics and psychology in media formats in in all the platforms tv and written uh media that these these structures are used to to create this groupthink that everybody suffers from and what what can we do i can't remember who asked the question but what can we do to stop ourselves succumbing to the effects of this groupthink i know you said switch your telly off and don't buy any mainstream media newspapers of course get your news everywhere else but even st still you know, you can't get away from uh, and people base their reasoning and arguments on a false premise, don't they? 
Yes, yeah, so it's very unfortunate. So any individual can stop watching the mainstream news and can stop reading the newspapers. And then you suddenly find that all of your family, all of your colleagues, all of your acquaintances are still watching the mainstream news and reading the mainstream newspapers. And it's incredibly difficult to get away from it. And the, the only thing you can you can really do, I mean, you can't just stop talking to your family, obviously. That's <laughs> a good idea as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I want to tear my hair out a, a lot of the time, but you you have to very gently try to find any manner of different ways of encouraging the people you know to be more questioning, to look at alternative sources, and and so on. But kind of it goes back to this point that I, the Carl Sagan quote. You know, if your family members and your acquaintances have completely bought into this idea, let's say that Britain and America have good intentions when they're dropping bombs all over another country. It's extremely difficult to get them to, to change their opinions. So all yeah. you can do is very gently sort of try to keep getting them to, to, to question things. Because what you start to realize, of course, is that the mainstream narrative never actually makes sense. You know, there are just too many clear bits of evidence contradicting it. So if, if you think, if you've got a friend who's saying, well, the government is claiming it's doing humanitarian intervention and isn't that a good thing? You know, surely we have to go and save the people of Venezuela. Then you, you have to find what is the most obvious contradiction to that. So yeah. you could talk about the way America and Britain enforce sanctions on other countries, which has had devastating consequences. Or you can say, look, Britain and America are providing weapons to the Saudis and they're destroying Yemen and slaughtering numbers of people. Surely that's not humanitarian. You know, how does that that fit with this picture? But it's a real struggle. So Sorry, I again. always like to say to to my friends, um, it, for example, the Venezuelans. Um, how would you like it if the Venezuelans came over here and started telling you that they were going to help you? Um, you wouldn't be very happy about it, would you? And also. Um, you know, everybody knows the cost of everything and the value of nothing. We were talking about when we were talking about money. And uh, is it Tony Ben? Uh, what power have you got? Where did you get it from? In whose interest do you exercise it? To whom are you accountable? And how can we get rid of you? <laughs> Well, so assuming he wasn't talking Five about questions. <laughs> yeah, so assuming he was writing general questions about kind of politicians and so on. So, so I, th I think all of those questions are things that we need to be asking all the time. And one of the problems is that many of these questions, particularly in relation to power. So, what I, what I say to a lot of people is that uh, although I talk about a lot of different subjects, they're all connected, but underpinning all of them, we've got propaganda where the mainstream media are not telling us what's really going on at all. But the other thing is that in all of these topics, the concept of power really matters. The fact that some people have too much, some people don't have enough, and you've got imbalances in power everywhere. Until we start to talk about power as a kind of idea and how it works and how it's manipulated and how it corrupts, if people are just not aware of it, you never get anywhere with them. So you've got to, we've got to start saying, you know, these people have too much power. And one of the things I would like organisations who want change to do is to start saying, let's all talk about 
how can we remove power from those who have too much? And make that one of the big questions that we're going to talk about every day. So yeah. MI6 is this completely secretive organization that ultimately can commit murder without any sanctions. Completely unacceptable in a democracy. How can we take power away from MI6? How can we stop governments with insane sociopathic leaders going to war when millions of people don't want it? What can we do to change the balance of power? And it's a huge complex question because the people with power have been deliberately trying to take more and more power pretty much for the last 50 years. And they've been very successful at doing it. And ordinary people have less and less, unless they can find a way to very uh, actively work together and, and start changing the way, the way everything works. But something like corporate power is something that I think we could change if we made it a big enough issue and start saying, we don't want companies to have the right to commit these crimes and get off with just a slap on the wrist and a fine. We don't want companies to be able to hire and rehire everybody because that's just taking wealth off everybody who works for them and concentrating it into the pockets of the rich. We don't want them to be able to exploit all their suppliers, whether it's in the third world or here. And those are things that I think we probably could have a meaningful debate about and perhaps start to bring about um, some change. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think, you know, those those kinds of de debates should be going on within our trade unions, um, you know, within Unite, within Unison, within the NEU, etc. Um, those debates definitely need to be had. They need to be had in the uh, TUC as well. Um, Rod, Lizzie, we've reached the top of the hour. Once again, a magnificent show. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining with us. Uh, joining us and uh, I know everybody who's watching tonight the uh, I've been watching the comments and there um, we've had lots of people commenting so uh, quick shout out to Atcha John, Kevin Rathbone, James MC, Jonathan Cooper, Human Love Solidarity and everybody else who's been watching us tonight I hope you've enjoyed the show and you've enjoyed talking to each other in the chat rooms um, we'll be back next week same time same place so join us then at seven o'clock <laughs>